Let's look at Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. We've been talking about the many facets of Christ. That's the name of this study. And this will be our last night in this study. Consider Jesus the many facets of Christ. And what we said is, is that Christ is like a, is like a diamond. You know, if you, if you have a diamond and you hold it up, you can look at it from different angles and see the light reflecting that diamond in different ways. You can just see its beauty uh, when you turn it o- around and look at it from different perspectives. And it's the same with Jesus Christ. When we lift him up and we study uh, his life, his ministry, his person, his nature, his attributes, when we just study who Christ is and what Christ has done and what Christ is doing, we see from many facets his beauty, his greatness. And so we've been walking through some different aspects of the life of Jesus Christ. For example, we talked about Jesus being the lion and the lamb. We've talked about Jesus being um, severe with some folks and gentle with other folks and why he was severe to some and gentle to others. Uh, We've talked about the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And tonight, as we close down our study, I want to talk to you about Jesus being dead and raised. Dead and raised. And we're talking here about the work of Christ, what Christ actually came to earth to do. His death, his burial, his resurrection. Now, before we get into that, just three quick reasons. We've done this every week. Three quick reasons we need to consistently in our lives consider Jesus. Number one, so we can marvel at him. We want to just just gaze upon Uh, who he is, what he's done, so we can grow in our love and adoration for him and marvel at his greatness and grow in our worship for him, that our hearts might be stirred up uh, in, in worship for him. Because Jesus, everybody look at me for a moment, Jesus is worthy of our worship, is he not? He's worthy of our worship, and we want to gaze at him so that our hearts will be stirred to worship him. And we come on Sunday morning, we're not just going through the motions. When we open up our Bibles on Monday morning, we're not just going through the motions, but we want to worship Jesus. We want to, we want to just exalt him in our lives and from our lips. Second reason we need to consistently consider Jesus is so that we can be transformed into his image. 2 Corinthians 3.18 is something interesting. It says, as we gaze upon Jesus intently like you like you gaze when you look at yourself in the mirror, when you gaze at Jesus like that, you are transformed into the same likeness. But that's pretty cool, isn't it? In other words, if you'll keep your focus consistently on Jesus, God will use that to make you more like Jesus. So if you want to be more like Jesus, then study him, gaze at him, think about him, praise him, talk to him, focus upon him. And the third reason that we need to consistently consider Jesus is so that we can learn from his example. He left us an example to follow. Hebrews 12 says, fix your eyes upon Jesus. He showed us how to live a life of obedience to the Father in the power of the Spirit for the glory of God. And so we need to consistently Every day, consider Jesus, think about Jesus, worship Jesus, talk to Jesus, spend time with Jesus, share Jesus. Jesus needs to be the focus of our lives because it's all about Him. So, looking at the different facets of Jesus tonight, I want to talk about Jesus' death and His resurrection. But first of all, Christ died. We need to establish that. Christ 
died. A lot of people want to focus on certain elements of Jesus' life and ministry to the exclusion of others. And there are a lot of people that love to talk about the teachings of Christ. They love to talk about the good works of Christ, but they don't talk much about the death of Christ. And we need to understand that the reason, ultimate reason Jesus came was to die. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And for him to do that, he had to die for guilty sinners. And so you, you can't play this game of just focusing on this aspect saying, oh, Jesus was a good moral teacher, but ignoring his death on the cross because his death on the cross is central to who he is and why he came. So we need to emphasize uh, the, the death of Christ. It is the central theme. You may want to write this down this isn't in your notes. The death of Christ is the central theme of the redemption story. You might say it's the hinge on which our salvation swings. If it were not for the cross, you and I would be lost and in our sins. Christ had to die for our sins to be paid for so that we could be forgiven. And so the death of Christ is the central theme of the redemption story. We're going to see in a moment the Old Testament pointed to the death of Christ. The New Testament uh, explained and and described the death of Christ and gives us the implications of the death of Christ. Uh, let me show you how important the, the death of Christ is in the redemptive narrative. Matthew devoted 33% of his gospel to the last week of the life of Jesus. Think about that. 33% of his gospel, and it's 28 chapters, right? 33% is focused on that last week, the week when he died at Calvary. Mark devoted 37% of his gospel to the last week of Jesus' life. Luke devoted 25, a quarter, 25% of his gospel to the last week of Jesus' life. And John, listen to this, John devoted 42% of his gospel to the last week of Jesus' life, focusing on the cross, the central theme of redemption. And there are 175 Direct references to the death of Christ in the New Testament. 175 direct references to his death. So this is something important that we need to understand and and really um, praise God for. So let me give it to you like this. Let me say it to you like this. Christ died for our sins as our substitutionary atoning sacrifice. There's some big words in there, but they're important words. Our uh, Christ died for our sins as our substitutionary atoning sacrifice. In other words, substitutionary means that Christ took our place. We're the ones that deserve to die, right? We're the ones that have rebelled against God. We're the ones that deserve punishment, but Jesus took our place. The word atoning there speaks of Jesus dealing with our sins. His death was to deal with our sins so our sins could be forgiven, to make a way for our sins to be forgiven. And sacrifice speaks of him laying down his own Life And the Bible speaks this. Look over in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is my favorite Old Testament chapter. I love Isaiah 53. Look what it says in verse 4. This was, by the way, written hundreds of years before Jesus Christ walked upon the earth in the first century. There's archaeological evidence that helps us to understand Dead Sea Scrolls and other things. Archaeological evidence that helps us to understand that these words were written before Jesus Christ was actually walking on the earth in the first century. And look how clearly it speaks of the death of Christ and the reason for the death of Christ. Look in verse 4. Well, back up to verse 3. 
He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Pierced. See that word pierced? This was written before Jesus Christ what, uh, hundreds of years before Jesus Christ was on the earth, and it was written before there was even a method of execution uh, called crucifixion. But yet, before crucifixion was even around, the Bible's saying he was pierced. Pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Look in verse 6. This is the, the story of the Bible in one verse. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him upon Christ the iniquity of us all. Isn't that amazing? Hundreds of years before Jesus Christ walked on the earth, the Bible said, in the Old Testament it prophesied that Jesus would come and bear our sin and our sorrow. You say, wait, is that really talking about Jesus? I mean, it, it, could it be a little bit more specific? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look what it says in verse 9. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. You remember the Bible said in the Gospels, a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus down and put him in his tomb. Amazing details written prophetically hundreds of years before Christ actually walked upon the earth. And so this, this Old Testament passage and other Old Testament passages, Psalm 22, other places speak of Jesus Christ dying for our sins. Now, fast forward to Romans chapter 5, verse 8. This is one of those verses you ought to have memorized if you don't. <clears throat> Write it down on an index card or something and put it on your bathroom mirror or put it on your dashboard in your vehicle. But Romans chapter 5, verse 8, the Bible says, But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, you know what I love about that verse? That verse reminds us that Christ didn't die for us because we're good. He wasn't just doing us a favor because we're worthy of that. He died for us even though we're sinners. That's how much he loves us, even though we don't deserve it. He died for us. That's love, right? That is amazing love. Now, to, to kind of drive that point home, uh, let's just say um, that uh, I, um, I, I pushed, a, uh, pushed one of my children out of the way with a car coming down the road, saved my child's life, but I got run over by the car and died. Now, you would all say, that's noble, Right? A dad saving the life of his son, uh, that, that, that's noble that he did, that he gave his life for his son. And, and you would probably think that was a, a good thing. But what if I decided to go to, um, to a prison, and I went to death row, and I died for a hardened murderer? Probably you would think, well, that's a waste. Why would he? Why would Wade go and die for this murderer? You see, Jesus died for us, even though we don't deserve it, right? 
And that's amazing love. That's what this passage is all about. Now, again, fast forward to, uh, let's look at 1 Peter 2.24. 1 Peter 2.24. We'll get one more verse here. Near the backs of your Bible. 1 Peter chapter 2.24. Chapter 2, verse 24. Love this verse. The Bible says, He Himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So on the cross, Jesus Christ took our sin on himself and died in our place to take the the punishment that you and I deserve. Now, let's just talk for a minute about different aspects of the atoning death of Christ. These are different things the Bible mentions about his death that are important to understand. First of all, let's talk about propitiation. Propitiation. Let's say it together. One, two, three. Propitiation. Now, that's a big word, right? But so is refrigerator. And you know what a refrigerator is, right? Well, you need to know what propitiation is. This is a very important biblical word, and it's all in the scriptures. But let's look in. Uh, let's look in First John two. We'll look at one verse. First John chapter two. First John chapter two, verse two. Speaking of Jesus, our advocate with the Father, in verse 1, but in verse 2 it says, He, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So Jesus Christ is the propitiation for your sins, my sins, the sins of the whole world. Now, what in the world does that mean? What does propitiation mean? It simply means that Jesus Christ became the object of the wrath of God in our place. It means... That Jesus satisfied God's wrath so we would not have to face God's wrath. It means that he took all of our punishment that our sin deserves. He took it all on the cross for us. That's what propitiation means. And so God poured out his wrath against our sin when it became the, the, it became the sin that Jesus took on his shoulders. He poured all that wrath out so that we don't have to fear his wrath. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. That's the doctrine of propitiation. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, calls this the heart of the gospel, that Jesus Christ satisfied the wrath of God. And so on the cross, think about this, on the cross, God the Father was pouring out his wrath upon God the Son, which makes the doctrine of the Trinity very, very important, right? Because if the Trinity is not true, if you don't have three separate persons, one God but three separate persons that all possess that essence of Godness, then at the cross, nothing would happen. But because there is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, on the cross, God the Father was pouring out His wrath on God the Son, taking our wrath for us, taking our wrath in our place. So Jesus Christ became the object of the wrath of God. The reason I say that is because there are people... Uh, in religious circles that are called modalists when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity. And they believe that Jesus was one person at a time. So, for example, he was God the Father for a while, and then he left from, he changed from being God the Father to being God the Son, and then after he was God the Son for a while, he became God the Holy Spirit. He was one mode at a time. If that's true, the cross is meaningless. Nothing was happening on the cross. But the doctrine of the Trinity is a gospel doctrine. It's not just something interesting to talk about. At the cross, God the Father was punishing God the Son in our place. See how important that is? 
And so that's the idea of propitiation, all right? Jesus satisfied the wrath of God, took the wrath of God in our place. The second word is the word redemption. The word redemption, look what it says in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 7, Ephesians 1, verse 7, the Bible says, In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, and then it describes it, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Oh, I love that verse. And so, this verse teaches redemption, that Jesus paid the price that sets us free from the penalty of sin. Jesus paid the price that sets us free from the penalty of sin. And you might also add, and power of sin. Penalty and power of sin. We are free from the penalty, free from the power of sin. That's what redemption is. And redemption is a marketplace term. It was used in the first century of the marketplace. Uh, it was used of the, the slave trade. Someone would come along and there would be slaves to purchase. And there would be uh, actually people in the first century that would pay the price for the slave and then set the slaves free so they no longer be a slave. That's the picture of what Jesus did for us. He came and died on the cross. He paid the price for our sin so that we could be set free. That's redemption. Freedom is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And, and the third word is the word reconciliation. Look over in Romans 5 with me. Romans chapter 5, back to Romans 5. By reconciliation I mean the death of Jesus made a relationship with God possible. Our sin separates us from God. Isaiah 59 two, right? But there's a, a wall of impurity Our sin between us and a holy God. With sin in our life that's not been forgiven, there's no way we can be in the presence of God. No way we can have a relationship with Him. No way we can call Him Father. And and so here's what the deal. When Jesus died on the cross and we embrace Him as our Lord and Savior, He took that barrier away. He washed our sins away. So now we can come into the presence of God. We can have a relationship with Him. Listen to what it says in Romans chapter 5. Look in verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So, before you met Christ, you were an enemy of God. You were far from God. You had rebelled against God. But when you met Christ, the wall of impurity between you and God was washed away by the blood of Jesus, and you became a friend of God. Isn't that good news? A friend of God. And so all of that is tied up in the idea of Jesus' death. That's why he died. He died to satisfy the wrath of God that we deserve. He died to set us free from the penalty and power of sin. He died to bring us into a relationship with God. And he had to die for all of those things to happen. We would never know God in a personal way. We could never have our sin dealt with. We could never uh, be reconciled to God if it were not for the death of Christ. He had to die. It is the central theme of redemption. Jesus died for our sins. And so Christ died. And let me just encourage you. This is kind of a quick side note. Let me encourage you to to focus upon the cross. There's something there's something spiritually healthy about as the old hymn says, 
surveying the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Because every time you look at the cross, you're reminded of God's love for you, right? And every time you look at the cross, you're reminded that you're a sinner. And your only hope was that Jesus died in your place. You didn't earn salvation. Jesus went and took your punishment for you and my punishment for me. So it keeps us humble, right? When you look at the cross, you can't be proud, prideful and proud before God. The cross reminds you, hey, you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Your only hope was Jesus and reminds you how much you are loved by God. The, listen, the cross declares over your life that you are loved. No matter what you've done, no matter your background, no matter who you are, God loves you and he proved it at the cross, right? What, listen, what more could he do to show you his love than actually giving his only son to die in your place? What more could he do than what he's already done? The cross is the supreme demonstration. Write this down. The cross is the supreme demonstration of the love of God for you. The cross is the supreme demonstration of the love of God for you. So Christ died. Amen? Grateful that he did. It was a horrible event, but I'm grateful that he, of his own volition, went to the cross, nailed to that cross at Calvary, hung there from 9 in the morning to 3 in the afternoon, so that you and I could be saved. So Christ died. But here's the the next facet of the work of Christ. Christ is alive. He died, but he's alive. He he, he rose from the grave. And I want to just kind of talk about the resurrection for a few moments under three, actually four headings to kind of walk through what the resurrection is all about. We're going to do this quickly. But number one, I want to answer this question. Why is the resurrection so important? Why is it a big deal that we understand the resurrection and that we celebrate the resurrection. Well, look over in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul addressed this very issue. New Testament book right after Romans. If you're in Romans, you can just keep turning over to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul wants us to understand how important the resurrection is. Starting there in verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised. Now he's dealing with some folks in Corinth that were saying, hey, there's no such thing as resurrection from the dead. No one rises from the dead. That, that's, not a, that's not a reality. Well, Paul's saying, okay, if you want to play that game, if you want to say that Christ has not been really raised, here are the implications for you. Number one, this is in your notes, our message is useless. Look what he says in verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain. That'd be really... Um, disheartening if my preaching was in vain. <laughs> I don't know how many, I've, hundred, I've preached hundreds and hundreds of sermons and spent hours upon hours studying God's word. But listen to me, when we stand up and we proclaim the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, we talk about Jesus dying for our sins and rising from the dead. It is a message of power that saves people, right? Over in Romans 1.16, the Bible says the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so the gospel has life-changing power. It's not in vain. Why? Jesus is alive. But if he's still in the tomb, we're wasting our time tonight, Right? With this message. We need to go do something else. Go play Powerball or something, right? That's an entirely different sermon, alright? That was a joke. I'm not suggesting you play Powerball. That was tongue-in-cheek sarcasm. I don't recommend you do that. Okay. By the way, isn't it funny? When the, uh, 
when the Powerball numbers go up and it's like billions of dollars, that's when everybody signs up. Like, they don't sign up when it's just, you know, like $20 million. That's not enough. They want to wait till it gets to, you know, you know, $150 billion. Then they're going to sign up for it because that would be real money, right? Anyway, and your chance of winning goes way down and people give their paychecks to buy those tickets and their family doesn't get food and, and it, it preys upon uh, poverty and it's just a bad thing. But again, I didn't want to get into that. I was just making a joke, but I need to clarify that I'm not for Powerball. Okay. And if Christ has not been raised and your preaching is in vain, look at this. Next thing. Our faith is vain, verse 14. And your faith is in vain. If Christ had not been raised, you're believing in someone who's an utter failure. Who, you're believing in someone who, who said one thing about himself that was not true that he was son of God, that he could give you eternal life. He's still in the grave. He can't do any of that stuff. Your faith would be in vain. Third, if Christ did not rise, our, our, we are still in our sins. Verse 17, Christ has not been raised. Your faith is futile. Uh, you're still in your sins. Jesus died on the cross, but, but by his staying dead, it proved he, would, he did not... Uh, his, his payment was not accepted by the Father. You're still in your sins. Next, our departed loved ones are lost. Look in verse 18. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who know Christ, have perished. Next, the apostles are false witnesses. Verse 15. Look what it says. We are even found, Paul says, to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So he's saying, if Christ were still in the tomb, if resurrection was not a reality, then our preaching is false. And then, if Christ did not rise, we are to be pitied. Look at what it says in verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If resurrection is not a, uh, not a future reality based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if we don't have hope beyond the grave, then this life would be miserable. Wouldn't it? Listen, if this life was all that we had, that would be miserable, would it not? If you're, all your hope was in this little short life, and all of the hardship and all of the, the physical ailments and, and how brief life is, it would just be hopeless if resurrection were not a reality. And so it's a big deal that Christ has been raised. Look what he says in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So he said, hey, listen, take a deep breath. All this stuff that I just said is not true of your life because Christ has been raised. So let's talk for a minute about the reality of the resurrection. The first one is so important. Jesus Christ rose bodily from the dead. Jesus Christ rose bodily from the dead. I want you to hear your pastor say this. We believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ. And here's why I say that. In... In Baptist life, in the middle part of the 1900s, uh, liberal theology began to infiltrate our seminaries. And, and professors would say things like this. Some professors would say things like this. Uh, you know, Christ is, is, is resurrected in spirit. His spirit still lives on, or his example still lives on. But he wasn't supernaturally resurrected from the dead. Well, if that's true, go back to those verses we just read. Our faith is in vain, Right? I mean, if he, if, he, if he was not supernaturally raised from the dead, 
our preaching is useless, we're still in our sins, we'll never see our saved loved ones again. If that's true, then we are hopeless. We've got to say, Jesus Christ was raised, listen, bodily from the dead. So wait, can you prove that biblically? Well, look what it says over in Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Look what it says in verse 38. After Jesus Christ is resurrected, after death on the cross, back at verse 36, he says, as they were talking about these things, that some were saying he was raised, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your hearts? Now is this just, um, are they just hallucinating here because they're tired and, and strained and stressed? Is this just a hallucination? Well, look what it says next. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, he says. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. But, and when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And we see over, in this passage, we see over in John, the end of John, that he eats fish with them, right? They eat fish together. He had a physical body. Now, it was a glorified body. It was a brand new body, an imperishable body, but it was, it was his body. And when we're raised from the dead, based upon the resurrection of Christ, It'll be our bodies. It'll be a new body, imperishable body, a glorified body, but it will be a real body, right? Can't wait for that. And so, Jesus Christ rose bodily from the dead. Now, think about this quote from Norman Geisler. This is really good, really thought-provoking. The only objective way the world could know that Christ rose was if he rose in the same material body in which he died. In other words, how could we have any assurance he rose if if his disciples didn't see him alive in his body. And so it's it's objective evidence, the reality of the resurrection. And there's more evidence uh, related to the resurrection. Let me give you three pieces of quick evidence. Number one, the empty tomb. The empty tomb, the fact that the tomb was empty, is compelling evidence that Jesus Christ really did rise from uh, the dead. Uh, the, the disciples saw, Matthew 28, they saw the empty tomb, and they saw him alive from the, the, the tomb. The next one is witnesses, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, listen, uh, we're witnesses of the resurrection of Christ. There are hundreds of people who have not yet died that you can go ask that saw Jesus alive from the dead. Witnesses, witnesses. Now, if there were any court case in, in our nation, any court case, and we could produce 400 witnesses saying the same thing, guess what? That, that argument would win the day, right? Well, Paul's saying there are hundreds of people that have seen Christ alive. Go talk to them. They're not dead yet. You can ask them. Witnesses, one of the compelling evidences for the resurrection. And then third, the transformed lives of the disciples. When Jesus Christ is arrested and crucified, his disciples scatter. They are scared. They are timid. They are locked in a room, but then in Acts chapter 2, they're boldly preaching. They're suffering for the gospel. They are giving their lives even uh, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a transformation there that can only be explained by them having seen Jesus Christ alive. Listen to this quote from Hank Hennegraaff, the Bible Answer Man. He says, 
What happened as a result of the resurrection is unprecedented in human history. In the span of a few hundred years, a small band of seemingly insignificant believers succeeded in turning an entire empire upside down. Think about that. Just a handful of folks that said they were followers of Christ changed the Roman Empire. Right? How do you explain that? Hendegraaff says, While it is conceivable that they would have faced torture, vilification, and even cruel deaths for what they fervently believe to be true, it is inconceivable that they would have been willing to die for what they knew to be a lie. I mean, if they knew this was just a hoax, that they were just perpetrating this to, to create a legendary story about Christ, no way do they, do they lay down their lives for the sake of the gospel. Their transformed lives are evidence that Jesus Christ really is alive. And I might add to that, the transformed lives of the disciples in this room are evidence of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, right? The fact that he changes us is evidence that he's still alive. He's in the life-changing business. The, the old song says, um, He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. We know he's alive because of the way he changes our lives. I'm, I'm not the same person I was 10 years ago. And that's evidence that Jesus is, is working on me. How about you? He is changing our lives. And so it's evidence of the resurrection. And then fourth and last, let's talk about the implications for a moment. And I believe this is the part we don't talk enough about. I mean, why is this such a big deal that we focus in on the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Let me give you uh, five things. Number one, Jesus Christ was who he said he was. Jesus Christ was who he said he was. Look over with me in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Verse 40. Jesus says, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of of the earth. And he says in verse 39, this will be the sign of the prophet of Jonah. He said, hey, when I, when I come out of the tomb, just like Jonah came out of the fish, it will be a sign to you that I am who I say that I am. Look over in John chapter 2 with me. John chapter 2, the fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Look in John chapter 2 with me. Verse 19. Verse 18. I always do that. I back up one verse. I like to mess with Bob in the, in the sound booth. John 2, verse 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus' resurrection proves that he was who he said he was, the Son of God, the the great I Am, that had taken on human flesh. And there's other places we could look at, but Jesus Christ was who he said he was. The second implication is this. Death has been defeated. Look in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. I have some other verses for you to look at in your own time, but 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 
Actually, back up. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the Im- uh, mortal puts on the immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written: Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that passage is talking about our future resurrection because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. We know that resurrection is now a possibility for us. And I shared this a few Sundays ago, but I want to just kind of walk you through it again because a lot of people don't get this, and it's so important. When you die. Okay, immediately you go to heaven. Your body stays here, but your, your spirit goes to heaven to be with Jesus. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. So the moment you die, you're in the presence of Jesus. Isn't that good? That's good news, isn't it? I mean, we don't have to fear death. We go to, we go to spend time with Jesus. But when the end time scenario is unfolding, there's going to come a moment when Jesus Christ returns, that's called the second coming of Christ. And listen to me, he is coming back. He's going to set everything right. When he comes back, at that moment, the Bible says our bodies, we read it there, are going to be raised, our, our bodies that, that dissolved into dust, they're going to be raised. He's going to put it all back together. Okay, And those new bodies will be imperishable Immortal. They will be the bodies that we enjoy eternity in. So at that moment when our bodies are raised, our spirit will be reunited with our body. And we go to heaven in that brand new body and get to hang out forever in that brand new body. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Say, well, Wade, what age will my new body be? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. It doesn't say. Who cares? Uh, but it'll be whatever, whatever will optimize your joy, because heaven's going to be all about joy. That's how old your body will be. Okay? And so... Uh, that's going to happen. But that is based upon the fact that Jesus Christ was raised. Because he was raised, we can count on our resurrection, which means we don't have to fear death, right? We don't have to fear death. He's going to defeat it. He has defeated it. He's going to come back and raise our bodies from the grave. So death has been defeated. It says there, O death, uh, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? We do not... Listen... Followers of Jesus Christ do not have to fear death. I'm, I'm telling you, I'll be honest with you, I don't fear death. I really don't. Now, I, sometimes I, can, I concern myself with how I might die, okay? I don't want to hurt to you, all right? I don't want to hurt. But I, I'm not scared of death. It's just, it's just a step. It's a, it's, a, it's a pathway into the very presence of, of God. And we need to, we need to understand I uh, need to understand that. Here's the third thing. Jesus is reigning. Because he's alive, he's a reigning. It, it, he's reigning. If he was still in his tomb, he wouldn't be the king of kings and lord of lords, would he? He wouldn't reign, rule and reign the universe. But in Ephesians 1, it says that the earth is now his footstool. He's reigning above everything because he is alive. If he were still dead, he could not rule and reign as our king and our lord. So Jesus is reigning because he is alive. Fourth, Jesus, because he's alive, is active in our lives today. Over in Hebrews 7.25, it says he, he lives daily to make intercession for us. Because Jesus is alive. Now, here's some really good news. You ready? Because Jesus is alive, he prays for you every day. So Hebrews 7.25 says he daily lives to make intercession for us. Isn't that cool? Jesus is praying for you. I read a quote uh, recently from uh, a pastor named Robert Murray McShane. He was a Scottish pastor in the 1800s. 
He said this. He said, if I could hear Jesus praying for me in the next room, I would fear nothing. If I could actually, think about it. If you could actually hear Jesus praying for you every day, we'd fear nothing, would we? He said, and yet, he's praying for me. I need to remember, he is, I don't hear him, but he's praying for me. I ought not to fear. Jesus is praying for me. He's alive. He's risen. He's active in our lives. He's praying for us. He's working in us. He's changing us. He's fellowshipping with us, all because he's active in our lives, because he's resurrected. Here's the fifth thing. Fifth implication. Jesus saves. If Jesus Christ were still in the tomb, he could save no one, could he? Save no one. He's a dead man. How can a dead man give life to people? How can a dead man give eternal life? How can a dead man give life beyond the grave? How can a dead man save? He can't. But because he is alive, he saves. Over in Acts 1, verse 8, it says, We are his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. We, Jesus said, I want you to be my witnesses in Acts 1, 8, because I am alive and I am still in the saving Business. So those are the implications of the resurrection. There are more, but those are the ones I wanted to share with you uh, tonight.